0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, we will be reading from Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. And once you put a finger there, we will also be reading from 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. Before we get into the word... um, there's something I believe the Lord deposited in my heart to share and it's quite simple in its phrasing um, in, in its language but I really believe that the Lord wants to be established in our lives and in our hearts as the unique goal of our lives put another way Christ should be and desires to be the unique goal of our lives. Irrespective of what we do, the occupation we have, the family we have, the job we may have, Christ must reign victorious and supreme and must be treasured above anything that we have or anything we may find ourselves doing. God longs to be our unique goal And if we leave today with anything, let that be central. That God longs to be our unique goal. When we read the scriptures... And I'll share this before we go into Genesis 18. And if you are looking for a title of sorts, um, I want to call what I'm about to share with you today, Heaven's Pattern. And no, I was not reading Mike's book last night, trying to figure out what I'm going to preach today, because he has a book called Heaven's Pattern. <laughs> but um, I decided to call it Heaven's Pattern anyways, right? So... um Yeah, that's a good book, by the way. Shameless plug. Get a copy if you can. Um, But there's something important for us to understand about our Christian journey and pilgrimage. Right? In the book of Leviticus, uh, it is a book about prescribed ways to worship God. Right? There are several things that are mentioned in that book, and they are uh, sacrifices and offerings. And there are five in particular, but I'm going to focus on three and use them as a way to understand our Christian journey and our our pilgrimage with God. The first one is the sin offering. This is something that many of us are familiar with, right? The sin offering, generally speaking, speaks of our redemption, right? Christ came as a lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. That is John 1, verse 29, right? So we have the sin offering. And this deals with our redemption. Then we have what's called the trespass offering. Can you say trespass offering? The trespass offering is not like the sin offering, but what it does is it deals with the forgiveness of sin from omissions and commissions that are outside of God's prescription in daily living. So whenever you violated something that God uh, had prescribed, that was considered a trespass, and you'd offer a trespass offering. But then for our purposes today, there is a sacrifice called the burnt offering. And this burnt offering was supposed to be offered whole. And this deals primarily with responding to what God has done. So what am I trying to say? Oftentimes in our Christian experience, we're thankful for who God is and we understand that Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God who was slain to save us from our sins. We understand that whenever we make mistakes or we miss the mark, that God is faithful and we can come to him and he is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. But the point of interest today is that third sacrifice, which is the burnt offering, because this doesn't just point to what God has done for us and towards us. This actually shows us and reveals how we should respond to all that God has done. And I'm here to submit to us that God isn't just interested in us knowing that God loves us, he's forgiven us, that God is willing to forgive our sins, but how many of us know that when he laid his life down, the only response, the only right response is for us to lay our lives back down for him. This is oftentimes the place of struggle or the place people struggle to get past. Because it's easy to identify with a God who just forgives. Yes, the trespasses are covered. But this burnt sacrifice, if we fast forward into the New Testament, you'll remember what Paul said after declaring the gospel in the book of Romans from chapters 1 all the way through 11. He says, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, you should offer up your bodies as a living what? What? Holy and acceptable to God. And this is your reasonable act of service. So, in God's perspective, you're only reasonable when you understand that the only way to respond to what He's done is to bring your life in its totality. That's what the burnt offering is pointing to. You had to put the whole animal on the altar. What is that saying for us today? God is looking for the entirety of your life and of my life. We're not going to compartmentalize and give God little portions. Hey, Here's Sunday, here's that. But what God is looking for is the entirety of your life. And when you see him rightly, the honest response is, why would we think to do anything other than lay our lives down? And this is what happens when we... Forsake the place of beholding when we don't cultivate a life of prayer and a life where God is constantly set before us. What starts to happen is these areas of our heart begin to come hard, cold or compromised because we don't see him rightly. And if you don't see him rightly, you can't lay your life down in response to his great love. So it's important for us to understand this as we journey, right? Because there is a way to worship God. You, don't, you and I don't get to choose how we worship God. What did Jesus say in John chapter 4? He says, the time has come and the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. There is a way to worship God. God there is a prescribed way and there's a prescribed pattern and as I as we progress through the scriptures I hope that this becomes clear um, in a few moments but turn with me to 1 Chronicles 15 verse 13 I will start there and then we'll go to the text um, that we're using for today the main text If you're there, 1 uh, 1 Chronicles 15 verse 13 says, and just to give a little paraphrase or backstory here, David had tried transporting the Ark of God's covenant, right, from the house of Obed-Edom, and in the procession or during the procession, it says, people who were not prescribed to carry the Ark, carried it, and even though there was jubilation and joy and dancing, a man named Uzzah reached out his hand to touch the ark because it almost fell over and it says God broke out against him and he died and it says that day David was afraid and the ark was not able to make it to his destination. So when David investigated, he realized that there were some things that were out of order when they tried to transport God's ark, the ark of his presence from one place to another. And this is where we find ourselves in First Chronicles 15, verse 13. It says, because, this is speaking to the Levites, you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. We did not seek him the way we were supposed to. In other words, we didn't follow the prescribed order. When you look at that word for prescribed order, there is a word that is used in the Hebrew called mishpat, and it means a verdict, a prescription, or a pattern. You did not follow the prescribed pattern, and and David realized What happened, happened because we didn't follow God's pattern. So now we're going to turn to Genesis 18 and track that same word because it's used again in Genesis 18, verse 19. And it reads, this is when God came down to see if the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was indeed what he had heard. And in the midst of it, God is about to go and judge the city or see what's taking place. But Abraham is there and God makes a little bit of a pit stop. But then he has a conversation with himself. And he says, shall I hide such a thing from Abraham? And this is what it says in verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness And justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Right? So I have chosen him, this is Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The word there for command is the same word that was used in the divine order, the mishpat. And what God, in essence, is saying is that I revealed myself to Abraham and my pattern to Abraham. And my expectation is that Abraham will take that and break it down and begin to teach his own family this same pattern. And this was so that God could bring to Abraham what he had promised him. So when we read, the scripture says, God chose him, and some versions say, I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? Righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I want to take a step back and kind of describe why the life of Abraham is important because as I was preparing, something the Lord made apparent to me was that for where many of us are, regardless of where we are, there's so much that we can draw from the life of Abraham. There's so much that we can draw from the life of Abraham. But before we just do that, I want to take a moment and just describe what we read. Genesis is what we would call a narrative in the scriptures. And it's a particular type of text that is written a certain way and conveys a message that we're supposed to just draw application from. It covers historical things that took place so we can learn and apply the things there. Right. But then in narrative, for those of you who've been in theater, how many of you have been in theater? I know Mike used to act back in the day. You know, the language of like plots and all the other stuff. You familiar with that? At least when you watch movies, anyone's movies, Ethan's given me a big thumbs up because he's actively involved in something like that at Disney or so I've heard. But what you have is a narrative is a purposeful story that tells historical events, right? And these events of the past are intended to give meaning and direction to any given people in the present time. So basically, in the scriptures, when we read the narrative, there are a couple of things we need to understand, and I'm just giving you a general overview here. There's usually a protagonist, right? A protagonist is the primary person in the story, and then you have what's called an antagonist, right? The antagonist is a person who brings about conflict, or he brings about the tension. And then you have an agonist, right, which is... The major characters that get involved in the struggle. So in God's story, and I'm just summarizing it because we need to understand Abraham's life. In God's story, God created man to image him. And he created him for his pleasure and for man's benefit. We know that the enemy sabotaged the plans. They took the bait. And then they started to reflect the image of the enemy rather than the image of God. And the whole redemptive story in the scriptures is pointing to one thing, how God rescues us from the clutch of the enemy and restores us, but one day will restore us in a new heaven and in a new earth. So when you read Genesis 1 through 11, that's the prologue of what we should expect in the rest of the scriptures. And when God begins his plan of redemption, he begins with this man called Abraham. So Abraham is a very unique individual, and I want us to look at several things in his life today that I believe many of us will find application for in our lives. In Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 3, the children of Israel had gone astray and, have start, and started to forsake God and his covenant over time. And when God wanted to remind them of his own covenant, his own faithfulness, and call them to order, he actually referenced Abraham's life. And look at what it says. It says here in Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 3, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who you bore. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of a song. The reason Abraham's life is important is because Abraham's life was a pattern of sorts. In Genesis chapter 20 we find it recorded that Abraham was the first person endorsed by God as a prophet. And he wasn't a prophet because of predicting the future. And he wasn't a prophet because of fancy prophetic dreams, interpretations, or any of that. He was a prophet because of the life that he lived. His very life was a message for how God would restore humanity and restore his plan. That's why he was called a prophet. And when you begin to study his life, you realize that there's several points, which we'll go over here shortly, that are worth taking note of. So Abraham is not just a man, he's a pattern, so much so that God doesn't just bless individuals, God blesses Abraham. And because we were in Abraham, right, the sons and daughters of Abraham, we're blessed. When you look at the book of Matthew, you'll notice that there are two figures that Jesus is connected to. Right When Matthew's writing the, the Gospel of Matthew, he connects Jesus to the Old Testament by identifying what two individuals? Abraham and David. Why is Abraham important? Abraham is important is because that pattern or that system or that wisdom or that technology, for lack of better words, is what God would use to foreshadow Christ's coming and how he would bring blessing through one man to humanity. So as we look at the life of Abraham, I want you to notice a few things. One thing you'll notice, his story spans from Genesis 12 to about 24, is when we first hear about Abraham, God encounters Abraham by speaking to Abraham and telling him to leave everything he has. God makes him a promise. And he tells him to detach from everything and to go somewhere he doesn't even know. Right? This can be likened to our own salvation and our call that God has. God says, I am calling you out from your family, from everything that you know, and I want you to take this journey with me. That's where we meet Abraham. So what we see is that this man is willing to detach from everything he knew. He was willing to detach from family. He was willing to detach from anything that had to do with his work, prestige, whatever it was. He left it all to respond to God. That's the first thing we see about Abraham. As we begin to progress in the story, there are several other things that are worthy of note. The Bible says that Abraham, as I've already mentioned, was a prophet. Right? He was a prophet of God because of the life that he lived. Something else that, the, uh, something else that the Bible points out is that Abraham was a man who knew the way of prayer. What do I mean by that? When you begin to read Abraham's life, there's something that is important to note. Everywhere that Abraham went, he pitched tents and he built altars. The problem with our time and our day now is that we're doing the opposite. We pitch altars and then we build tents. Right? What do I mean by that? The altar speaks about prayer and connection with God. Everywhere Abraham went, he thought it necessary to exercise himself toward God and in the things of God. His location didn't limit or cause that connection with God to seize the scripture says that he would go from one place he would pitch his tent and then build an altar then he'd go to another place and then he'd pitch his tent and build an altar and you see that littered over the land were moments with God that later not just defined him but his children after him he cultivated a life of prayer and where did we start i told you at the beginning Christ must be our unique goal. The Bible also identifies Abraham as being very rich. He was a man of great resources. And in every place he went, God caused him to increase. He increased in everything that he did. And I believe that there's a call for all of us to be stewards in the area of finance. But more than that, amidst all these different things... It's evident that Abraham had one unique goal. Because though it was rich, he was rich, that was not central in the storyline, in the plot. Through the life of Abraham, we learn how to deal with the promises of God. Abraham patiently waited for the promises of God, he endured many different things and made mistakes along the way. But the scripture says, God approaches him and confronts him in John 17 and encourages, in Genesis 17, and says, walk before me and be blameless. And as he aligned himself with God, we see how he waited 25 long years until the promise came. And even when the promise came, as it was cited earlier, the promise did not eclipse the reward himself, which was God. Isaac came, and when God was looking to test him, he says, Give me your son Isaac. And Abraham was willing to let that go also. And the Bible says, because he did that, that God was going to bless him. God was looking to see if he had the entirety of his heart. When we read of Abraham, as we continue to read of Abraham, we come upon things like the story of Lot his nephew. The scripture says that Lot was taken captive and was a casualty, well, not a casualty of war, but he was caught up within a war that was not his own. And Abraham was implicated because Lot was carried off. And the Bible says that Abraham had 318 trained men who were in his household. And I want us to pause for a moment because as we're beginning to see the picture, The verse we read talked about how God was, that God knew Abraham, and that God had revealed himself to him so that he would instruct his household in the way of righteousness. We see that there was a lot of activity taking place here, and one thing that I want to point out is, where did the 318 men come from, right? 318 men of war who went and fought four kings. If you go back and do your history and you see all these armies, It says, Abraham went by night and he took back not just his own nephew, but the spoils of war. He took back the spoils of war. What am I trying to say? In Abraham, we see God's pattern. Not just for an individual, but for homes, because what works in the homes is what works in the nation. And I believe there's a call not just to us, but to families, that God wants to restore the place of prayer, the the place of the altar, but God wants to do something in families. He wants to do something in us as individuals, but then he wants us to do something with our families, to respond to his call as families. But I want you to notice that he was a man who handled resources well. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of swift obedience. But he had 318 trained men of war under his roof. Abraham was doing a lot. And as if that wasn't enough, it says he had flocks and donkeys and all of that. And just so we know, whenever the scripture says a household here, we can't mistake this with the way we understand households today. The household today typically you know, comprises a husband, a wife, and their children. But here, the scripture is saying, when you look at the scripture and it says a household, you realize that these 318 men, Lot, all the different people that are mentioned, were all considered as part of his household. And I want you to notice an amazing pattern here. Everything that God did with Abraham had an impact on every individual in his household. This is why we can't forsake the way of the altar. This is why we can't forsake the way of prayer. This is why we can't forsake that, because it's not just about you. In God's pattern and how he set things up, as you and you and I establish these things, they're designed to impact our families and designed to impact the nation's. But the way God does that is he starts with Abraham, but he knows if he can get Abraham, then he can get the family. And I want us to be encouraged, even as we read about the 318 men. I don't know some parts of your life that may have been taken captive, so to speak. Parts of our lives that are not in submission and in alignment with God. We are going to have to learn the way of war, even in the spirit, to take the territory that God longs to give us. Have you ever recognized in the scriptures that even though the children of Israel were given the promised land, that they had to go into conquest? They had to go in to take over and to take the territory? God told Abraham, I'll give you this land. But then what does the scripture say? It says that as the land was was given, Joshua went in and they had to fight real wars. They had to fight real wars. Had to fight real wars, so Abraham has that component also. It says he had 318 men who were trained for war in Genesis 18. We see that he was a man earlier in the chapter who knew how to host the presence of God, he recognized the presence of God. And it says, when he did, he rose up quickly and he told his wife quickly get food, do all of this. And I think there's a call there for us to respond to God and to learn to host the presence of God. The Bible says Abraham stood by and watched God eat. I want you to note that he didn't sit down and eat with God. That's powerful for several reasons, one of which is that his heart posture was ministry to the Lord his heart posture was ministry to the Lord. It says, while they ate, he stood by. And then I want you to notice that something God had promised him, something which was a pain point in his life, it says God eventually brought up on his own and he said, where's Sarah? They had been struggling with a son and a child and God says, after Abraham was hosting him and in the process of hosting him, God begins to address the issues that were in Abraham's life, things that he had promised him. But in that, what do we see? We see that our posture, our heart toward God, something he wants to restore, is a ministry to him that is purely just that. Where our needs are no longer just front and center, but that God is now exalted as our unique goal amidst everything we do. And as we progress in the story, It just gets sweeter and sweeter because God now starts to say, man, Abraham has really ministered to me. How can I hide what I want to do from Abraham? And as he opens up his heart back to Abraham, we see an intercessor in Abraham rise up. As two friends speaking, he begins to ask God, shall the judge of the earth cause the righteous and the wicked to have the same fate? And he prays for Lot once again. And God hears his prayer And sends angels to deliver lot. We see that even in Abraham, there was an intercessor. Another thing we see in the life of Abraham was that he had a good reputation with outsiders. Everywhere he went, God blessed him. And those who were outsiders also recognized who his God was. And they recognized him as a man who was honorable in their day. And what am I saying with that? I believe that there is a call that God has for us, that as he becomes our unique goal, and as we give our hearts to God, as we give ourselves to him, something is supposed to take place as we model out even the value systems that we heard Steve mention earlier. As we begin to live this way, something is supposed to happen to those around us. It begins in our homes and in our families, but something is supposed to happen to those around us. But in all of this, I'm driving one point home. It didn't matter what Abraham did, whether it was war. It didn't matter whether he was traveling from one place to another. One thing was constant, and that thing was Jesus or Christ was his unique goal. God was his unique goal. God was his unique goal. And for many of us, oftentimes, when we are dealing with life and going throughout life, we, as we journey, begin to make excuses for why that shouldn't be the case. Oh, I have two jobs. I'm working extra. I'm doing all of this. And what's happening is that Christ is being removed from the place that he should have in our lives. But one thing I want to drive home today is for us to recognize that in the midst of this all, God and God alone was Abraham's reward. Yes, he received other things. Yes, other things happened. But God was his reward. God was his reward. And Christ should be our reward. And there's something amazing about understanding that, that any person who truly has Christ as their reward, it's evidenced in the way that you live. The way that you live reveals what you treasure. The way that we live reveals what we treasure. And what God is calling us to do is to, once again, make him the unique goal so that the way that we live can get impacted. One aspect of Abraham's life that's also often overlooked, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, is that Abraham was a man who lived with eternity in view. You realize that what drove Abraham's life was that he actually saw something, which was referenced earlier, even by John. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Right? Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 9. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. So we see that Abraham's life was not rooted here. The reason Abraham was able to live based on a different value system is because God showed him something. God revealed something to him. And because God revealed this thing to him, he ended up living in a way that reflected God's values and God's glory We see this happen again in the life of Jesus, right? Hebrews chapter 12 says this, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the what? The cross, despising his shame. So Jesus was able to live powerfully because of what God had revealed to him. We can't afford to live Christian lives without a vision of him. And a vision of him doesn't just mean this. A vision of him means you understand his eternal purpose, that there is a day that's coming. There's something greater that's coming that enables us to let go and give up the things we see and appear to be dear now. When God figured that Abraham saw this and he was willing to put his, money, to put his mouth where his money is or the other way around, God actually saw that he could bring about his plan and purpose through this man, Abraham. I pray that God would grant us divine vision to behold the face of Jesus again, but to know his plan and purpose so that we can live powerfully in our families. We can live powerfully in our homes. We can live powerfully in our generation, not holding on to anything that's here and now, not holding it so tightly that we forsake or we obscure the vision of God in our days. But like Abraham, a man of faith, a man who lived based off of what God had revealed, he was able to leave a testimony not only for his family, but even for outsiders. There's a call for us to get serious about our walk with God. It can't be a side issue anymore. There's so much God wants to do. And I pray that today God would deposit this sense of eternity in our hearts. That God would deposit his eternal purpose and plan in our hearts so that we can live powerfully today. So we can live powerfully today. One of the motivators, and Stephen touched on this, even of generosity, is storing, yourself, storing for yourself up treasures that are in heaven. That means you use unrighteous mammon for God's ends. You understand that it's a tool, but you give because you love, but you give because you know that there is a reward for those who give. And that reward is not even necessarily rooted here alone. There's a day that's coming where God will, have, will come back and he will have his reward in his hand. I want to go back real quick as we begin to land about talking about the pattern. I said earlier, we don't get to choose how we worship God. There is a prescribed pattern. And if we follow this prescribed pattern, we will recognize that we will run into what men of old ran into. In Jeremiah 6.16, the prophet writes, God speaking, he says, Ask for the ancient paths so that we may walk in the way. Ask for the ancient paths. And this is how spiritual things work. They're things that God does that are fixed because they're eternal and they're spiritual. They're not natural. What do I mean by that? When God does something and God gives a people something, there's a certain posture that is required for us to walk that thing out or to experience that reality. When God's people drifted from that, what ended up happening is that they would lose a sense and a touch of God and that reality was lost. I'll give you an example. We talked about the burnt offering earlier. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah comes to a nation that is estranged from God. They're worshiping Baals and they're wavering between two opinions. Sometimes it's God, but sometimes it's Baal. Sometimes it's God, but more often than not, it's Baal. And what was the answer? Elijah says the altar has been broken down. We're going to have a showdown with the prophets of Baal, but what I'm going to do in order to bring a people back to God is I'm going to restore something that always was established. It's the way of the altar. The nation's altar was broken down, and a man of the spirit knew, Elijah, came back and he said, what we need to do here is to repair the altar. And it says a nation stood before God, and after the the prophets of Baal had done what they needed to do, it says... Toward the time of the evening sacrifice. That is a pattern that was revealed in Leviticus. Elijah didn't just offer the sacrifice at any time. He didn't just come in the morning and say, hey, I can just call fire down at any time. It says, at the evening sacrifice. Go check the Bible. Go check Leviticus and go see when these offerings were offered. And it says, Elijah comes up and he calls the nation to draw near to God. And it says he began to rebuild the altar. He began to rebuild the altar. And then it says he took a sacrifice, which was a burnt sacrifice, by the way. A call to God's people to be wholehearted to him once again in their worship and in their devotion. And it says as he did that, he placed the sacrifice on the altar. And he asked them to pour water on the sacrifice And after he prayed, he said, Lord, let it be known that you indeed have asked me to do this, and I'm doing all this according to your word. And he prays a prayer so that the people's hearts would be turned back to God. And the Bible says, God answered by fire. These are the ancient paths. They're things that are established that are constant, but oftentimes we drift from them, and God calls us back to them. Right In the Gospels, you read that the spirit of Elijah, just let's do a little bit of, of, of Bible here. When Elijah died, right? Elijah died, everyone, right? Or he died, right? No, he didn't die, right? Elijah was taken where? Up to heaven. And what happened? Who remembers what happened? When Elijah went up to heaven, what remained? His mantle. Who inherited Elijah's mantle? Elisha. Right. And when Elisha inherited the mantle, it says the prophet said the spirit that was on Elijah is now on who? Elisha. All right. So when Elisha died, what happened to the mantle of Elijah? Did it remain or did it disappear? Come on, answer. We can answer. It's fine. No. Okay. where do we read again of this mantle, so to speak? John the Baptist. Are you guys seeing what I'm, I'm trying to illustrate? Spiritual realities are constant. All of a sudden, even though Elijah was gone and Elisha was gone, there's a man who adopted his lifestyle. And all of a sudden, in adopting his lifestyle and in that posture, what rested on Elijah now rested on him. I understand there's a prophetic word over his life. But what I'm simply trying to say is that God has set certain patterns in course. And God's call to us is to align with these patterns so God can bring about what he longs to bring about to us. And so his purposes will prevail in the earth and in our lives. Let's look at these last few verses as we get ready to close. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 17. Speaking of patterns, right? Now we're taking this idea of altars and all of that and realizing that there is actually a way to worship God. There is a way to walk with God. Look at what it says in Philippians 3:17, "Be imitators together of me, brothers, and observe those who thus walk, even as you have us as a pattern." That's a way of life. First, Thessalonians 1:7, "So that you became a pattern to all those who believe in Macedonia. In Achaia, Paul is speaking about the church at Thessaloniki who were a pattern because of how they lived and an example to the rest of the churches. Second Thessalonians 3.9. Not because we do not have the right, but in order that we might give ourselves to you as a pattern so that you might imitate us. Patterns. There is a way to worship God. Right. First Timothy 1 verse 16 but because of this i was shown mercy that in me the foremost jesus christ might display all his long suffering for a pattern to those who are to believe on him unto eternal life first timothy 4:12 let no one despise your youth paul speaking to timothy but be a pattern to the believers in word in conduct in love in faith and in purity second timothy chapter 1 verse 13 Hold a pattern of healthy words that you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Titus 2.7, concerning all things, presenting yourself as a pattern of good works in your teaching, showing incorruption and gravity. When it comes to God's house and what he's doing, there is a pattern So much so that Acts 744, the last one we'll read over here is, The tabernacle of the testimony was with our fathers in the wilderness, even as he who spoke to Moses instructed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. There's nothing that God is asking us to do that's original in and of itself. What God is asking of you and I is to align with his prescribed pattern. When you look at the life of Jesus, you recognize that he was not original in and of himself, right? A son reflects the will of another, right? What did Jesus say? John 5, 19. My will is to do the, like, I only do what I see my father do. He was not original. The whole purpose of a son is to reflect the father. Not one day was Jesus original. Did he do anything that was outside of the heart of his father? There was a what? A pattern. And now Jesus asks us to follow him who is a pattern. He is the greater Abraham. And he says, follow me. In the same way that I lived, in what I valued, in what I gave myself to, do the same. Follow the pattern. Follow heaven's pattern. When we align with heaven's pattern, what starts to happen is the things that God prescribes or longs to bring into our space, to bring into our realm, those things begin to manifest. With long suffering and over time, with faithfulness, they will begin to manifest. There is a prescribed order, there is a way to worship God. There is something we must do on our end by way of alignment to see all God longs to do in our space and in our lives. If you're a father here, there's a pattern for you fathering your children with your wife. There's a pattern, it's not random. We don't just get to pick and choose how we do it. God says, I've known Abraham, meaning I've revealed myself to him. And in my revealing myself to him, there is a pattern. There's a pattern that you will see and know that you can implement that will then be put on display for the world to see. How much of our lives are we living according to pattern? Because if we're not seeing his face and we're not giving ourselves to him, I guarantee that many of us, and I speak about everybody There are areas in our lives where we could say, Lord, I want to receive your pattern. I want to receive what you're saying to me. I want to implement it so that I can see what you've promised come to pass in my life. There is a prescribed order There is a pattern, and this is one of the reasons God also sets up leaders in our lives. Leaders are not just people set up in our lives because they have better administration skills, all of these different things. That may be true, but when God has raised up a leader, what God has done is His grace is functional in their lives to a degree that it becomes a resource to others. And the quickest way you can get into the fast lane, so to speak, is to align your life with that leadership. And what happens is when you begin to follow that pattern... What Paul said comes true. Philippians chapter 4 verse 9. Right? If you basically do what I do and you live the way I live, the God of peace that I have walked with will also be with you. There is a heavenly pattern that God wants to release to us. Gone are the days of living randomly. I'm going to do this thing my way. I'm going to serve God my way. I'm going to do church my way. Trust me, God has a lot more time than you do. Gone are the days. God wants to introduce us to a pattern, and the simple patterns we've talked about today are the way of prayer, right? God sets up leadership in our lives for a reason patterns. The ultimate pattern that we're to follow is Jesus Himself, the pattern Son. He came to show us a way. And I want to conclude with this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus had a very unique perspective on his life and the assignment that God had for him. And this is what he said concerning his own life. And speaking about offerings and how they cleansed worshipers and all of that. Actually, just read the whole verse. It is from verses 1 through 5, all the verses. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is the emphasis. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus understood his life as a total offering and sacrifice to God, that he lived to do the will of God. My prayer is that we would arrive where Jesus arrived, that even in John, when they brought him food to eat, after he went to meet the woman at the well, he says, I have food that you know not of. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. I pray that God would give us such great vision that doing his will would become our food. That that would actually be what satisfies our hearts. That would actually be what causes us to come alive. That we would lay aside our own ambitions, our own desires, and recognize that you will only find greatest fulfillment when you're in alignment with God. Even though Jesus was about to face a cross, a few days before he faced the cross, it says he was filled with joy because the very plan that God was accomplishing through his life, he said, "Lord, I thank you that you've hidden this thing, these things from the wise and the learned, but you've revealed them to babes." The way of the cross that is God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom to us. It's our pattern. And the more we align with that, the more we align with what God longs to do, the more we align with that, the power of God rests on us. His ability rests on us. But then we find the joy of the Lord. We find the purpose of God. We find all that there. So in conclusion, I just want us to stand together. As we are concluding, I want us to ask the Lord to grant us grace to be aligned with him again. In every place and area where there is a lack of alignment, we're going to trust God for grace to receive his pattern for our lives. We're going to ask God for grace to find alignment with him. Like Abraham, who was called. For some of us, what that might look like today is God might be calling you from a place where you've been unwilling to step out and to begin to journey with him. For some of us, the Lord is reminding us and calling us to rebuild altars that have been broken down in our families We have unsaved loved ones, people who don't know the Lord. Could it be that it's because there's no altar that's consistent there? That a pattern hasn't been received and is not being followed and lived out? God has so much in store for us. But I believe there's a call to alignment tonight. For some of us, God is saying he needs to train your hands for war and your fingers for battle. Like Abraham took the 318 skilled men who were trained in his own household, he was able to go to war and come back victorious. For some of us, the Lord might be calling us to fight, to begin to respond in a way according to his pattern. For some of us, we just need to make room for God again. And we need to learn how to host God again with no strings attached, so to speak. We need to find delight in who He is. We need to find delight in the Lord again. We need to learn to host His presence again, to make room for God again in a greater way. Abraham was saddled with great responsibility in a natural and a spiritual sense. But Christ remained his unique goal. So we'll take that song again, Worthy is the Lamb. But I'm just going to pray and I want to invite us. If you're here and you don't know the Lord and you feel or you felt a tug to respond to him. To leave everything that you've known and come to him. To say, I may not know where I'm going specifically in this life. in my life but I know that I'm called to journey with you if that's you I just want to invite you just to raise your hand and we're going to pray in a moment and if you fit in any other category of what's been discussed today I want to invite you to respond to the Lord today I want to invite you to respond to the Lord today God is looking for a people who worship according to the prescribed pattern. God is looking for a people who are willing to lay down their lives in response to the beauty of His Son. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy to be loved. He's worthy. So as we begin to pray, we're just going to ask the Lord in those specific things we've mentioned... Or if there's even something else the Lord is tugging on your heart, we want to take a moment to respond. Lord, I'm asking first and foremost as we pray that you would help us return to the ancient past, Lord. Lord, help us to see the pattern that we have in Jesus that we would respond to you, Jesus, not just by saying we love you or saying we are identified with you, but that we would live the way you live because your word says in the book of John that we know that we have fellowship with him because we live as he lived or we walk as he walked. So Lord, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that you would help each and every one of us To embrace you, our divine pattern, heaven's own pattern. Lord, I'm asking that above everything, above our responsibility, above even the promises we seek from you, perhaps promises you've given. We're asking tonight or this afternoon, Lord, that you would become our unique goal. Can you just pray that with me? Regardless of what you're doing in life, if you're a father, you're a mother, you're a son, you're a daughter, we're going to ask God for grace. Let's ask God for grace to respond to him rightly and to give him what he's worth. Lord, we're asking for grace to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to you. Grace to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to you. as we take our journey, grant us grace. Grant us grace. Grant us grace, we pray. Yeah, we're just going to take two minutes. Can we just lift our voices and just begin to do business with God and just say, Lord, in any place where your pattern is not seen in my life, Lord, I bring that to you. I bring that to you. I bring that to you and I'm asking that you touch me in the deepest parts of my heart. The Lord, that you touch each and every one of our hearts and that you would bring us back to you as your people. Bring us back to you, Lord. Lord, strengthen us in the place of fellowship with you. Strengthen us In the place of prayer, strengthen us, Lord, in the place of communion with you and with one another. Lord, we're asking that you would be our unique goal.